read the holy and inspired word of God this morning from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. begin reading at verse 35 and read to the end of the chapter. But some man will say, how are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened except it die, and that which thou sowest, thou sowest not, that body that shall be, but bare grain, it may chance of wheat or of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the earth, earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, forasmuch as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We read God's word that far this morning. On the basis of that and many other passages of God's word, is the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 22. What comfort doth the resurrection of the body afford thee, that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head, but also that this my body, being raised by the power of Christ, shall be reunited with my soul and made like unto the glorious body of Christ. What comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, after this life I shall inherit perfect salvation, which eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, 
Neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God therein forever. Beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord's Day 22 brings to a conclusion the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the articles of the Apostles' Creed. Back in Lord's Day 7, the Heidelberg Catechism explained the truth of faith, and there defined faith as a certain knowledge of all that God has revealed to us in his word and an assured confidence or a hearty trust that all of these things are for me personally. Then in the following Lord's Days, Lord's Days 8 through 22, the Heidelberg Catechism has explained the content of faith, what it is that faith knows to be true, what it is that faith believes and is assured of for oneself. Lord's Day 22 brings that to a conclusion. And more than just a conclusion and a stopping point, Lord's Day 22 is the grand culmination of this. And that because Lord's Day 22 is describing the perfection of our salvation, both in soul and in body. It's describing the great hope and goal of the child of God and the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ and the glory that we will know in body and in soul in the new heavens and the new earth. Truth of the resurrection of our bodies and life everlasting in heaven is the great hope and comfort of the child of God. In the midst of this world, we know trouble and sorrow. We know the difficulty, each one of the struggle with our own sins and sinfulness and temptation. We know hardship and affliction, loss and grief as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. There's the uncertainty that we face with respect to the future and our life in this world. And there's ultimately that last great enemy, death, that we must face. But in the face of all of the sin and the trouble and the sorrow of earthly life, we have this great hope and comfort set before us. We have the hope, finally, of being perfect in soul and body with all sin removed, no more struggle with temptation. We have the great hope set before us of deliverance from all of our sorrows and troubles. There's a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that awaits us. We have hope even in the face of that last enemy, death, that we are victors in Christ over death and the grave. This Lord's Day then describes the precious truth of the Word of God and the comfort that we have in belonging to Jesus Christ, both in soul and in body, for living and for dying. Consider this truth of God's word under the theme, our resurrection hope. First, let's consider the soul taken up. Secondly, the body raised. And then thirdly, the life everlasting. One of the truths that's explained in Reformed theology, particularly Reformed eschatology, is the doctrine of the end times, is the truth known as the intermediate state. And that refers to the state of the soul of the child of God after death, but before 
the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection of our body. It answers the question, what happens to our souls when we die? And that's a very important and pressing question. Death is a fearful, horrible reality. Death is the violent rending apart of body and soul. In the beginning, God made man with a body and a soul that are united together. And at death, those two are violently torn apart one from another. Death is the cutting off of all of the ties that bind us to this earth. It's the severing of the close earthly relationships that we enjoy. And apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and our belonging to him, death would be the just judgment of God upon us because of our sins. Death would be the verdict of the judge that on account of our sins we have no right any longer to live and exist in his world. Death would then be the opening up into the great abyss the beginning of everlasting death and the desolation and the torment of hell. In face of the awful reality of death, we must know what happens to our souls. We know what happens to the body. We see the body placed into the casket, lowered down into the grave, covered over and, and marked by the grave marker. But though we see what happens to the body, the question then is what happens with our soul at that moment? Throughout history, there's been a number of answers given to that question of what happens to the soul and a number of false teachings about what happens. One false teaching is that at the moment of death, the soul simply ceases to exist. The truth or that doctrine, that false teaching is referred to as annihilationism. It's the thinking that all that there is is the material. All that we are is a, a mashing together of a number of cells and that when that all perishes, that's all that we are. There's the going down into the grave of the body, but there's no soul there's no life after death. There's no heaven. There's no hell. And that leads to the thinking of many in this world then that if this life is all that there is and there's nothing after death, there's no heaven, there's no hell, then live life to the fullest. Live how you please. Pursue what you desire. Chase after all of the lusts of the flesh. Engage in all kinds of wickedness. Because this life is all that there is. There is also the false teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It's the doctrine of purgatory. The teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that when the child of God dies, his soul goes to purgatory, which is not heaven and not technically hell. We might say it's, it's on the outskirts of hell because the soul goes into purgatory to endure torment and doing that to pay for the sins that remain in that person until having paid the remainder of what's necessary for his sins, his soul is allowed then finally to go to heaven. And there has been throughout history also the false teaching known as soul sleep. This is the teaching that not only does the body sleep by going into the grave, but also the soul sleeps. It's not annihilated, but neither is it brought consciously to the bliss and the glory of heaven, but it remains with the body in a, a sleep, a trance-like, unconscious state until it's woken up at the return of Christ. All of those ideas are contrary to 
the plain teaching of the Word of God. Teaching of the Word of God regarding the intermediate state of the believer is that after death and before the final resurrection, our soul goes immediately to conscious bliss in heaven. Psalm 17, verse 15 says, As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. And the psalmist is referring to death there and the waking that takes place at death when he sees God face to face. Jesus' word to the penitent thief on the cross in Luke 23, verse 43 proves this today. Shalt thou be with me in paradise? And then the word of God in Philippians 1, verses 21 and 23. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And what is it that makes death a gain? This, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. And the Heidelberg Catechism Summing up that teaching of the Word of God says in answer 57 that not only my soul after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ its head. What takes place for the child of God at the moment of death is a transformation of the soul. It's not just that the soul leaves the body and goes to heaven, but there's a transformation of the soul that takes place at that moment. And that's necessary because our soul is corrupted by our original and our actual sins. Because of the corruption of sin upon our souls, our souls are not fit for the perfection of heaven. It's necessary for the soul in that moment to undergo a marvelous transformation, to be freed forever from all sin, cleansed from all unrighteousness. Our old man removed entirely and destroyed and brought then to perfection in heaven. What takes place in that moment is a resurrection of the soul. Our soul is not immortal in itself, meaning that it has the power of unending life in itself. And it's not the case that our soul all on its own, the moment we die, just flies away to heaven. There's a resurrection that takes place of the soul at death where the Lord Jesus Christ himself comes down transforms our soul and takes that soul up to heaven. Having been raised, the soul is brought in heaven to conscious bliss. The Bible does at times refer to the death of a believer as sleep. But those passages are referring to the body. The body sleeps for a time in the grave, but the soul is not asleep. The soul in heaven is alive, it's conscious, it knows and enjoys the bliss and the glory of heaven. And all of that takes place immediately. That's the language of answer 57, after this life shall be immediately taken up to Christ. There's not a delay from the moment we die until our soul is brought to heaven. There's not a, a waiting period. The moment that we die, the Lord Jesus Christ comes for our soul and brings our soul immediately to the conscious glory of heaven. Truth is an important part of our hope and comfort, as we'll come to see the hope of the child of God is the resurrection of our body and the glory of soul and body. 
But nevertheless, it's an important part of our hope that we have a soul that goes to heaven at death. That's comfort for us when we face the death of our loved ones. Whether that be in old age or middle age or in youth or even a child that God takes from the womb, we have the comfort in the face of death that God takes the soul of our loved one who dies in the Lord to glory. That's comfort for ourselves as we face the reality of death. As fearful as that is, I know what will happen when I die. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming for my soul to take my soul to glory with Him. Something that we are confident of by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have confidence by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ of what will happen to us. We need not live in Fear and doubt. We need not live in fear and doubt our, regarding our loved ones who die in the Lord. We need not live in fear and doubt as we ourselves face that last enemy. We have the confidence that for us, death is gain. For we go to be with the Lord Jesus, which is far, far better. Our hope and comfort is not only for the raising of our soul at death, our hope and comfort also is for the resurrection of our bodies at the return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, our bodies will rise out of the grave and be reunited with our souls. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ comes first, we all must face the reality of death. Soul goes up to heaven, but our body goes down into the grave. When Christ returns again, his return will be announced with the last great trump. And with the sounding of that trumpet, all who have died will rise again out of the grave. Our bodies will be reunited with our souls. All who lived and walked in unbelief will go to the resurrection of condemnation. But for we who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, we rise to the resurrection of glory. John 5, verses 28 and 29 say, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. For the child of God, that resurrection will be the raising of the same body that descended down into the grave. It's a wonder. Think about what's happened to the body of some of God's people throughout history. Some of them have been burned at the stake and their ashes scattered. Some cast into the depths of the sea and their body never found. Their body fed to wild beasts. Their bodies will rise. Think about what happens with the bodies of our loved ones and ordinarily with our own bodies when we die. That body goes into the grave and it decays. It turns to dust. But in the resurrection, those same bodies will rise again. will be reunited with our souls made like unto the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Heavenly Father in His almighty power and His perfect wisdom keeps track of all of the particles of the bodies of His people. 
knows where every part is so that he will bring them together in the resurrection. And in the resurrection, there will be a preserving of our personal uniqueness, our individuality. Certainly without any sin or weakness or anything like that, but something of who we are as God has made us will be preserved in the resurrection so that it's with the same body that we will rise again from the dead. And yet there will be a wonderful transformation that takes place with the body. Just as there's a transformation of the soul at the moment of death as it's brought to glory, so there will be the transforming of our bodies in the resurrection. That transformation must take place. God's word here in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 50 says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Our bodies, as we possess them presently, are not fit for the glory of heaven. They're earthly and they're corrupted with sin and what is characterized by incorruption and being carnal and earthly cannot inherit the heavenly. It's absolutely necessary that they be changed and transformed and be made bodies that are fit for the glory of heaven. And that means then that our resurrection will be different from and far more glorious than the resurrection of one like Lazarus. Lazarus' resurrection was a marvel. It astonished many, and yet he rose again to earthly life with a body that could yet experience sickness and suffering, with a body that was still characterized by sin and that finally had to undergo death again. Not so, in the final resurrection, our bodies will be raised and made like unto the body of Jesus Christ in his resurrection. What that will be like is described for us here in 1 Corinthians 15 in a series of four comparisons. First of all, Chapter 15 here, verse 52, speaks of our body being sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Body that's planted in the grave is characterized by corruption. It's a body that's subject to all of the forces of sickness and disease that break down and destroy and corrupt. When our body is raised again at the return of Jesus Christ, it's raised in incorruption, a body that's beyond the touch of the forces of decay and sickness and destruction. Secondly, verse 43 begins, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. The body that's planted into the grave is characterized by dishonor. It does not possess the glory and the honor with which God made us in the beginning, but it's characterized by the dishonor of our sin. But when that body is raised again, it's raised to glory, to the glory of perfection, wholly delivered from every influence and corruption of sin and made the instrument of perfect righteousness and obedience to God. Thirdly, verse 43 continues, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. The body that's planted into the grave is a weak body. It's a body that's very limited in its strength, 
its abilities. And that's true even of what we might consider to be the strongest among men. It's a body characterized by weakness. And when that body is raised again, it's raised in power. Raised in the power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, a body that's strengthened and capable to serve and to obey God. A body that forever is characterized by the strength of youth. And then, finally, verse 44 says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. The body that's planted into the ground is a natural body. It's an earthly, carnal body. It's a body that's tied to this earth by a thousand ties. The body that's raised again at the return of Jesus Christ It's a body that's spiritual. It's a body like the body of Jesus Christ when he rose again from the dead and he could appear and he could disappear. It's a body that's fit for life in the spiritual kingdom of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Transformation will be astonishing. Be raised with a body that's very different from the body which now we possess. Be raised with a body that doesn't stand in need of food and drink and sleep and exercise. We'll be raised with a body that does not stand in a marriage relationship like we do now. It's a body that will be delivered from every imperfection, every weakness, every sickness, disease, every element of decay will be wholly taken away. Everything that corrupts, everything that brings pain, everything that brings disease and the need for for surgery and the breakdown of the body is wholly done away with. Everyone who's crippled or handicapped rise with a body that sees and walks and handles. Every child of God with a mind that's hurt by all kinds of mental anguish. Be raised with a mind that's whole and sound. We will rise with a body that is incapable of sin. That no longer is under any influence of sin, but is the instrument of righteousness and perfection. This is the great hope of the Christian. When the Bible describes what it is that we hope and long for, certainly part of that is the comfort we have at the moment of death and our soul going up to glory. But the hope of the child of God is the return of Jesus Christ and our bodies being raised out of the ground and being reunited with our souls and made absolutely perfect. Being freed from every sorrow and suffering and affliction and sin. It's this great hope that the Word of God holds before us. This is our future. Death is not the victor. Death is conquered. The grave is overcome. We have the certain confidence that we will rise. Come up again out of death and the grave and decay. 
be made perfect like our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us comfort in the sufferings and the trials of earthly life. In all of our afflictions, we can look up in hope that these are, weighty as they may be, temporary and passing. There will come a day when that suffering is no more. And all of these things are in the hand of God, his way of preparing us for that eternal weight of glory that's ours. And it's this, finally, that gives comfort when we stand at the grave or when we face our own death. We have hope for the soul and hope for the body, that this body is planted in the grave for a time as a seed, and one day that seed is going to sprout. We lay that body in the grave as a body that sleeps, knowing that very soon it will be awoken by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and go to see our Savior face to face. We have this hope and we have this confidence only for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This hope is grounded in His death and His resurrection. As 1 Corinthians 15 teaches us in verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The awful, corrupting power of death is sin. Sin is the reason for death. It was sin in the beginning that brought about the judgment of God. The day in which thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And therefore, for us to have hope and confidence in the face of death, we have to know that the power of death, sin, has been addressed. And that has been addressed by the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his suffering and his death on the cross, our Lord has paid for sin. He's paid in full. So that he's made full and complete atonement for all of the sins of his chosen people. By his death, he's broke the power of death. Having dealt conclusively with sin... Now, it was necessary for Christ, having died still, to go into the grave for a time, but not because grave had, the grave had the victory over him, but it was necessary for him to show that he had truly died, to experience that aspect of death which was going into the grave, but the grave had no hold on him. Having made atonement at the cross, Jesus Christ came bursting forth, out of the grave as the one who is victorious over death in the grave. And the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ is our victory. Verse 57, but thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ having died and risen again. Our Lord applies to us that victory that he's won. So that though we have to go through death, death is not victorious. We face death in the confidence of the victory that's ours in Jesus Christ. We have the confidence for our soul and we have the confidence ultimately for the raising of our body. Confidence that we know and are assured of by faith in our Savior. In that confidence, we can face death. In that confidence, we can even taunt death. Verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So confident are we 
And what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ that in a humble confidence we can taunt death and the grave. Death, where's your victory? You don't have the victory because the victory is in Christ. Oh, grave, where is your victory? There is no victory because we have the victory over death and the grave and the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our redeemed soul and body, we will live forever in the glory of heaven. That life of heaven something that we begin to live now already. That's the language of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day in question and answer 58, that since I now feel in my heart the beginning of eternal joy, there is a beginning. That beginning took place in our regeneration where the resurrection life of the risen Lord Jesus was planted into our hearts. We have this new heavenly resurrection life of Jesus Christ in us. In principle, in principle, we are delivered out of death into life, out of darkness into light. We are new creatures in the Lord Jesus. And that's something the Heidelberg Catechism says we feel in our hearts. That's something that we know. It's something that we experience by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith we know and are confident of. We feel and experience that beginning of eternal joy, which is the joy of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that we belong to Jesus Christ, that his righteousness is counted as ours, imputed to us so that we have peace with God. Being justified in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know ourselves to be heirs of everlasting life. We feel, we know, we experience already now in this life the beginning of that eternal joy. But it's a beginning. not yet the full reality. We have this new life in principle and yet we have with us always that old man of sin that corrupts and pollutes all that we do, even our best works. We live yet in a veil of tears so many sorrows, so many hurts, so many discouragements. And though we rejoice in this beginning that we already have, we continue to look for the full reality of that. And the return of our Savior and life everlasting. What we will enjoy is life. In heaven, we will know the true reality of life. And what life is, is at heart communion with God. If death ultimately is separation from God, everlasting death and hell, separation from the fellowship and the favor of God, life then is Communion, friendship, fellowship with God. And that is at the heart of the glory that awaits us in heaven. It's life. It's being with God. It's knowing His favor shining upon us. It's communion and fellowship with Him and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It will be bliss. It will be unending joy happiness. It will be perfection. Deliverance from sin. Deliverance from the sufferings and the sorrows of earthly life. 
and it will be a life of unending praise to God. I don't know exactly what that will mean. Very likely there will be work for us to do in heaven, sanctified work, but in all of our activity in heaven, including whatever sanctified work the Lord may give us there, it will be praise and adoration of our faithful covenant God. And while there's much that we do know about what heaven will be like, there's much that we do not know either. Often the Bible in describing heaven says it's not this, and it's not that, it's not sin, and it's, it's not suffering, but it's put in the negative. It's not all of these things that we know on this earth because the positive is so far beyond what we can fully comprehend. And the Heidelberg Catechism here, quoting from 1 Corinthians 2, says in answer 58, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man to conceive. And though there's certainly a desire that we have to know more about the glory of heaven and what it will be like, it's a good thing that we don't know everything. If we knew everything about what heaven would be like, How strong, how urgent would be our desire to be there? We'd say, well, we know what it's going to be like, and and it'll be glorious and so on. And until that comes, we've got things we want to do here on earth. The fact that the Bible does not tell us everything, that it's far beyond our comprehension, keeps us looking for it, searching the Scriptures to understand it, hoping and praying fervently For the coming of that, I want to see what this eye hasn't seen and hear what this ear hasn't heard. And I want my heart to understand what no heart has ever conceived. I want to be in heaven. I want to know the glory and the perfection of life with God. And that life in all of its wonder and joy will be unending. It's not just life, it's everlasting life. And that's impossible for us earthly, time-bound creatures to fully comprehend because this life is a life in which we're we're so caught up with a sense of time and, and things passing and usually time bringing the passing away of things. There are things in this earthly life that we look forward to and we rejoice in, and then when we have that thing, the novelty soon wears off. We're not as excited about it anymore. That's not what heaven will be like. That life that awaits us goes on and on and on without any end. No end to the bliss and no end to life with God. There's no disruption, no interruption, no breakdown of that. And the nature of it will be such that our hearts will forever thrill with joy. We'll never come to the end of the joy of glory. We'll never reach a point in heaven where we say, well, the novelty of it has worn off. It's not so precious to me anymore. It's it's not something that really fills me with joy any longer. I want something new. I want something a little bit different. That'll never happen. We'll forever be satisfied forever be filled to the fullest with the fullness of joy in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
This is ours. As children of God. This is ours as those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this hope and this confidence. We who are pilgrims and strangers in this world look ahead to a home that's prepared for us that is life everlasting. We know that with the certainty and the confidence of faith, the crucified, risen, and glorious Lord Jesus Christ. With that hope set before us, and that comfort in our hearts, we can press on as pilgrims and as strangers. We can be steadfast and unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's given us to do. Knowing that we have that great hope of life everlasting with our covenant God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. Pray for its application to our hearts and minds and lives by thy Holy Spirit. We are a weak and needy people. Our way is through a dark valley of tears. We thank thee for the great hope set before us and the comfort in our hearts belonging to our Savior Jesus Christ in body and soul, in life and in death. Give us strength for life, serve thee, carry out our callings with each day thou dost give and the strength thou dost provide. Give us confidence in the face of death. Forgive us our sins, for Jesus' sake, amen.